0: Welcome to That Jewish News Show. I'm Laura E. Adkins, The Forward's opinion editor.
1: And I'm Benjamin Cohen, our news director.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review That Jewish News Show wherever you're listening. Your reviews really do make a world of difference and also help more folks find the show. You can also now send any specific questions or feedback to that Jewish News Show at Forward.com or text or call our snazzy new Google Voice number at
1: 201-228-0412. Uh, up on today's show, we are going to be joined by Michael Helfand. He's an expert on religious law and liberty and a frequent uh, columnist to the Forward on all things related to the Supreme Court and the Jews. And he's going to walk us through a blockbuster church state case currently in front of the Supreme Court that could have an impact on Jews and uh, Jews who don't want to work on the Sabbath, which is super interesting. And I'm looking forward to chatting with him about that.
0: Yeah. But first, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the news of the day. George Santos, the congressman out of Long Island, was indicted on 13 criminal counts for Quote, various alleged fraudulent schemes and brazen misrepresentations. Brazen. Brazen. In other words, he lies a lot. He has a very long documented history of lying about little things and big things. Our colleague broke the news in December that he fabricated Jewish ancestry, including um, facts about his ancestors' persecution during the Holocaust and elected officials and local constituents are already calling for his resignation. So we'll be following that closely. But Benjamin, what was your initial reaction to this news?
1: I mean, anytime I get a news alert about Santos, I kind of have like this uh, eye roll slash <laughs> facepalm uh, yeah. emoji that pops in my head. Uh, I mean, there's just been so many crazy stories. Uh, um, this is, I mean, I actually saw uh, a journalist uh, in New York who's been covering Santos. For, for longer than most people, has been covering Santos for a couple of years now, is actually uh, has written a book about Santos. And he was posting on Twitter uh, this morning that you can already pre-order it on Amazon. But I'm guessing he's going to have to rewrite that last chapter.
0: <laughs> yeah, some last minute changes. Also, what a hard book to fact check. I do not envy whoever <laughs> is uh, in that position. So... That'll be interesting. We've yeah. already, our colleague Jacob Cornblue, our intrepid political reporter, has been covering this story. We'll put links in the show notes, but definitely more to come of course. on that story. But on a more somber note and personal note, the Jewish community this week has been reeling from the death of 25-year-old Herschel Siegel, who died by suicide last week. He grew up in an Orthodox community outside of Atlanta, the very same one that Benjamin grew up in, um, and was a beloved member also of the Yeshiva University community here in New York. And relevant to this conversation, he was also gay. And in the days following his death, many people, including in our pages, pointed out that Orthodoxy and traditional interpretations of Jewish law are very stringent and anti-LGBTQ and view homosexuality very strongly negatively. In our pages, one columnist in particular also pointed out that the way that Orthodox communities often treat LGBTQ Jews may have contributed to Herschel's death. And we got a lot of reaction to this piece We got a lot of people saying it was good and that we need to have a necessary conversation about Orthodox spaces and how LGBTQ Jews fit into them. But we also got a lot of pushback, particularly from some people in the local community. Uh, Binyamin, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of how you're feeling about this whole news cycle.
1: Yeah, as you you said, I I am from Atlanta. I spent... Uh, the first, how many years? The first 35, 37 years of my life uh, in Atlanta. And I grew up in this community. I'm I'm friends with the Siegel family. I know them very well. And uh, yeah, it was was extremely sad news uh, for the community. And, you know, I think it's important for people to realize when you are, the difficulty in working in Jewish news and Jewish journalism is that we're working really, you know, with people we know, with people in the community. And they're not abstract stories. And also, you know, When we see you see this any time, you know, there's a tragedy when you have you know journalists parachute into somewhere and and try to paint a picture of what's going on there. Stories are always tend to be more complicated. There's more nuance, and sometimes coverage can be reductionist and miss the specific contours of the story. So I just know like some of the initial coverage um, that we had, some other places had, you know, was highlighting certain aspects of the story. Like you said, we we heard uh, from a lot of people. And we posted some, I think we posted uh, two letters to the editor yeah. uh, in response to that. So we got actually members of the community uh, writing back. I, I also want to just say that so the Atlanta Jewish community is, the Atlanta Jewish community, but in particular the Atlanta Orthodox community, is really unique in that it is largely made up of Balay Chuva, which is people who uh, became religious later in life. And yeah. you really see a mix of people at at the Orthodox synagogues. Um, you know, people who didn't grow up religious, religious people who did, uh, you see um, uh, black Jews, you see converts, you know, you see it's, it's a real melting pot. And I think it really represents the maxim of, you know, Southern hospitality. Everybody uh, is, is welcome there.
0: Yeah. I think there's two competing values here. And I think both are really important. And I shared this with a lot of the local folks who wrote in, including, Um, a local rabbi, but the job of a journalist is to shine a light on things. And the job of community members is to bring comfort to one another. And those values often align, but they're very often in competition. And it's also difficult because we don't fully know what contributed and how strongly to Herschel's death. There is strong evidence from his public posts that he grappled with his gay identity. There's also very strong evidence from people that knew him and his family that he was loved and accepted by everyone, That and that didn't contribute at all to his place within his specific society. But what is true, and people who've written in that strongly criticized us publishing the op-ed that we did from Mordecai Levovitz which I stand behind they basically said it is true that the orthodox community and you and I have both lived in orthodox communities and know this, it is true that there continues to be a need for a real reckoning with how you square the fact that the Torah itself is very unequivocally under traditional interpretations of Jewish law against homosexuality with the fact that a very significant number of people within the Orthodox community are LGBTQ, and some communities do a better job of this than other communities do. It sounds to me from you and others that the Atlanta Jewish community actually was an example of being able to deal with this
1: yeah I, th- I think separate from this case uh, to your point, I mean it's very important to discuss you know how the Orthodox community treats. The LGBTQ community. We see this right now going on with the Yeshiva University uh, case against their LGBTQ student club. So that's an important issue to discuss, but we shouldn't necessarily compound these two stories together because we're, we're, we are not privy to what was going on in, you know, with, with the Seagulls and with Herschel. And there was, there was a rabbi who wrote to us who said, you know, asking if we would wait till after Shiva to do some of our coverage. And I think there may be some pros and cons to that just to, to think about in the future.
0: Look, it's a, it's a really complicated story. We'll post a link both to our coverage and the op-ed and then some of the letters in response. But the bottom line here is this was a really tragic death of a young person. And it's it's hard. It's hard to deal with these things. We're going to continue to cover them and they're going to continue to be hard. So... And we're going to continue to listen to your feedback about, about how we can do better in, in covering these difficult things. Yep.
1: Okay, we're going to move on to the interview part of our uh, show. Uh, we're bringing on today's guest, Michael Helfand. He's a professor at Pepperdine University and Yale Law School. He's an expert on religious law and religious liberty here in the U.S., and he's a regular contributor to The Forward. Michael, welcome to the show.
2: So great to be here.
1: Did I get your bio right? I hope so.
2: <laughs> Pepperdine, yeah. It it's good enough to me. It's <laughs> <Okay>. fine. <laughs> Lots it's of fine. credentials.
1: Where are you joining us today from? Are You in?
2: I'm in Los Angeles. Los thankfully, Angeles. the semester the semester in New Haven is over. Um, I love being there. In case anybody from New Haven is listening, but <laughs> it's nice to be back with the family and actually remind myself that uh, I have children and what their names are, etc.
1: <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate. <laughs> Congrats
0: <that>. on making <laughs> it <get> back home. <laughs>
1: Uh, We're having you on today to talk about a really interesting case currently in front of the Supreme Court. And I just want to set the stage here for our listeners. It kind of all boils boils down to, uh, must employers accommodate your Shabbat observance? And so the story is, there's a U.S. Postal Service employee named Gerald Groff, who's Christian. And while his job did not initially require him working on Sundays, when the uh, Postal Service entered an agreement to deliver packages for Amazon on Sundays, he was required to change his work days as well. And he said, you know, this went against his religious convictions, convictions. It was his Sabbath. Uh, He ultimately resigned from the Postal Service because they would not accommodate him. And then he filed suit. The interesting thing for for our uh, listeners is that a bunch of Jewish groups, including the Anti-Defamation League and the Orthodox Union, all wrote briefs to the Supreme Court supporting uh, supporting him. We like to call it a block, We like to call it a blockbuster church-state case because uh, we're in the Jewish news business. But I think it's going to have a significant impact on Jews and other religious minorities who require accommodation of their religious practices. And I was hoping uh, you could uh, talk about this a little bit.
2: Yeah, I'm completely with you on the blockbuster piece of it. And you know, the question is, <laughs> what what's a blockbuster? And I think you know, Shabbat observance in the United States has um, for so long been such an integral piece of Jewish advocacy. You know, when you have the beginnings of uh, not just Orthodox Jewish advocacy, but Jewish advocacy generally in the United States, like what was it important for Jews? Like how do they get to be part of American society? One of the biggest sticking points was the Sabbath, uh, a Saturday observance of Shabbat. Yeah, there are Sunday closing laws. There are all these things in place in the 50s and 60s where this advocacy gets started. Shabbat observance became really like a wedge issue. How do Jews make space for themselves in the American story? And and to me, that's a blockbuster because in the 70s, we probably didn't get as much from anti-discrimination law as, as Jews and other religious minorities wanted. And now, kind of 50 years later, we're starting to see maybe a path forward on it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me, before I worked with you on the couple of pieces you've written so far on this case for us, I was kind of under the impression that there was just a blanket rule that U.S. employers have to accommodate their employees' religious observances, including Shabbat. So I'm curious if you can share for listeners, what is really the key question that this case is trying to answer. And aren't aren't U.S. employers already obligated in some way to accommodate?
2: So we should probably just start with the clarification. You know, here we're talking about federal law. There are also state laws that protect, you know, what rules govern in the workplace. And some of those actually provide more than federal law does. But, you know, federal law applies everywhere. So it's a big deal. And the answer is, you know, as of this uh, uh, Supreme Court opinion, TWA v. Hardison in 1977, the answer is employers don't have to go very far. You know, one way to frame the question is, and I've tried to do that in some of the pieces, how far must employers go? Accommodating somebody often requires uh, logistical challenges. Sometimes it chafes a little bit with respect to what you're trying to do in the workplace. Sometimes it just costs a bunch of money in order to accommodate And so what you're trying to ask is not whether yes or no, but what you're really trying to ask is how far must you go. Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act tells employers that they have to accommodate. They have to provide religious accommodations. And it says that they have to do so until, this is the how far question, it imposes an undue hardship. Um, Law is rough. Because it uses words. It's like, oh, we can solve this problem with a couple of words. We told you, undo hardship. Now you know what to do. And the answer, of course, is, well, nobody knows what to do. You know, what does that mean? How far do you have to go? And in 1977, the Supreme Court said, not so far. It means that you have to accommodate unless it causes or imposes a de minimis burden. I know. Why did they use de minimis? Why didn't they just use English? A de minimis burden um, on the employer. So if there's a little bit of burden, the employer gets to say, this is too much, I'm not going to accommodate you. And you can imagine um, that's not a very demanding standard. And as a result, this is something that has really many religious minorities have butted up against in litigation, trying to make their way in the workplace. And at times, it's as a result also forced um, employees who are members of religious minorities whose practices just don't conform to what the majority is doing. And that's why they need accommodation. Um, So they don't conform to what the majority is doing. And at times it's made them choose between, you know, getting a paycheck and observing their faith.
1: I think, you know, this is obviously a Christian case dealing with work on Sundays. And when we hear the phrase church-state issue, you know, we think, oh, it doesn't relate to us. It's a (laughs) church-state issue. But can you talk about, like, this is an inherently Jewish issue. And what will this decision mean for American Jews?
2: Oh, yeah. It's, you know— Jews in many ways were one of the, have been over the years, over the decades. Uh, Jews and Seventh-day Adventists have really pushed this issue, I would say, the most. And that's probably not surprising when you think about it. Um, Sabbath has been the biggest issue here. And how far must an employer go? You know, sometimes people try to paint these cases as, well, you're going to provide for the religious employee. And who's going to pick up the, who's going to shoulder the burden? It's going to be other people in the workplace. And that's not fair. And there's there's some some really important thinking on that front and that's a it's a fair point that you need to work through. But, you know, most of the time we're talking about cases where an employer can solve this problem with money, just paying somebody overtime. That's the that's just the reality in almost all these cases. And so, you know, really what Jews are looking for and why they press this and why all these Jewish institutions who normally fight about so many church state issues, why uniformly they've come out in favor of this postal worker is ultimately because um you know there's the the financial piece of this. Um I I, I want to be able to earn a paycheck. That's what makes my life workable, that what I can provide for my family. But there's also kind of this kind of dignitary piece to the case. The idea that I don't do what everybody else does. This very prototypical American story. My life, my rhythms, my holidays, all of this stuff is different than what, let's say, Christian America does. And the standard that we're going to use to figure out how much space needs to be provided in the workplace is almost a metaphor in that way. It's really asking the question of, you know, the institutions of American life, how far do they have to go to really make room for people who don't look like the norm? And this is the American Jewish story. Um, It's always been the American Jewish story, Um, the desire to have equal footing, to have equal rights, to have equal access. You know, so much of it has been about, you know, having our story reflected in the American story. And so it's not surprising that this has garnered so much interest. And in many ways, a Jewish community that can rarely speak in one voice, and maybe for very good reason. But on this issue, on this core issue, everyone looks at this standard and says, the law can't be this stingy.
0: Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see, you know, on the one side we had all the Jewish groups for the most part supporting the plaintiff in this case, but I was very surprised to see the largest federation of unions, AFL-CIO, actually filed an amicus brief in favor of the post office. And when I think of that story of the history of Jews getting acceptance for diverse practices in the workplace and also just rights of workers in general, I think of the big, often Jewish-led labor organizing movement as well. So is it, it seems odd to me that an organization about workers' rights is, is siding with the employer here, but am I wrong? What's your read of this position?
2: Yeah, so this is actually a very, a very essential piece of all these cases. Um, and what you often have in these cases is you have the employer and then you have a union. And the union has negotiated who gets off on Saturday, who gets off on Sunday, who wants to work on the weekend? I don't want to work on the weekend. I want to watch football on Sunday. That's, that's my pastime. So everybody wants off. How do you decide? And so what the union does is typically based on seniority. Some people get to pick their shifts, and some people have to wait in line to pick their shift. Now, here's the problem. The problem is if somebody gets to go to the front of the line because they have a religious claim, it upsets the manner in which a union can represent its members. And that's a big deal. But this is why I kind of I emphasize that other point that I made before. It's very possible, maybe even likely, that if these cases um, ended up at bottom, at their core being about union employees doing battle with religious employees, y- you would have like some really interesting, I would think, moral and ethical questions here about you know how to give priority and precedence what does it mean to negotiate you know there's a there's a democratic impulse here behind the unions you know they're trying to represent the collective will of the employees but the the truth of it is almost invariably and you can probably imagine this if you pay enough money in order to give somebody overtime especially these these sabbath shifts you can typically solve the problem. This is kind of the dirty underbelly of a lot of these cases where you know some people and some advocates want to make this, at least in my view, about this clash of like religious versus non-religious. But ultimately, what these cases, when you press really hard on them, they're about the employer trying to save a little bit of money in order to, well, they'll accommodate the union, but they prefer not to have a demanding standard on the religious side of the ledger.
1: You know, we all think of this, you know, in the Jewish community, we think of this as probably a a positive thing, you know, if there is more accommodations for Shabbat observance. And I'm curious your thoughts on if there would be negative impacts. Like, does this open a Pandora's box? That could actually hurt American Jews, um, where they take this religious accommodation, unfettered right to religious accommodations, you know, to the extreme. And, you know, for example, you know, if people don't agree with, You know, abortion. And does that mean I'm not going if a police officer is asked to guard an abortion clinic? Can he say that goes against my religion? I'm not going to guard an abortion clinic. What are your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, there the kind of parade of horribles. I don't know. Let's throw some others on the table. Um, Vaccine mandates. You know, that's obviously been in the news. People saying, uh, listen, my religion says I don't have to um, I don't have to get vaccinated for a whole host. uh, Not. I don't have to. I don't don't, I'm, I'm prohibited. I can't. Um, for getting vaccinated, for a whole host of you know whatever it may be, and so I know we have a rule in the in the office, but I'm not listening. Any standard that if you gave it you know unfettered right to ravage the employment system, I think you're going to have problems. But keep in mind, the standard baked into it, there always was a limit, right? That's what undue hardship means. That there's some line, some standard where if you go too far. Well, then the employer gets to say, no, 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 no. Now we've gone too far. And again, the question we started with is, it's not yes or no, right? It's how far must an employer go? And so one would hope, again, you move a standard, it it injects some legal uncertainty, no question. But there should be a way to move a standard that goes beyond, I don't know, one of the examples is under the current standard, if it impacts um, workplace morale, then you don't have to accommodate. And that feels like, oh, come on. That can't be right. I mean, you've got to be able to do better than that. And to move it up, but not hit like, well, you don't have to guard an abortion clinic. Like, there's got to be a line in between those two. And you'd like to think the word, the standard of undue hardship, does a decent job of capturing that if we can just draw a line that thinks a little bit more about how to incorporate and accommodate people in the workplace and not say, we'd like to open up the floodgates to everything. I think the law was written originally in a way that can make that happen. And I think it's really about just being a little bit more, you know, finding a little bit more space um, when it comes to the institutions of American life.
0: That totally makes sense. Um, Michael, this has been super interesting and I think helpful. what What is your prediction for what is going to come out of this? And also, when might we expect a ruling on this case?
2: Um, I'm guessing June. So like a couple of days in advance, Laura expects an email from me. Um Perfect. I'm thinking of writing, a little explainer. And here's my best guess. My best guess is, you know, there are a lot of religious accommodations issues that have nothing to do with the Sabbath. Um think about hijabs in the workplace. That was a Supreme Court case a couple of years ago. You know, there are lots of things. Abercrombie and Fitch didn't want somebody wearing a hijab because like you have to look like Abercrombie and Fitch. Okay, that's not gonna work, guys. You know, that's not that that can't be a thing. Um but you can see how there are other areas are, you know have nothing to do with the Sabbath and, and, and shift swaps, etc., that don't really impact the union. And I think what we get, whatever, we get, whatever we get in this case, I think it will do a lot of work in those cases. I think in those cases, we'll get a standard that, you know once you, once you implement it, people will say, "Oh, you know, things like dress and food access maybe, all these kinds of things that are important. The Sabbath stuff is going to be tough. Um, The Solicitor General arguing on behalf of the Postal Service was pretty firm on this, like requiring more money on an ongoing basis, whatever the standards should be, it shouldn't require employers to do that. And I I have a sneaking, there's a chance she might, you know, the Postal Service might win on this point. I sure hope it's not true. I really, really hope that ultimately the Supreme Court finds a way, even if it wants to keep its precedent, to say, Amazon, you know, a couple bucks per hour once a week. That's something that you have to do to make space in the workplace. I think that's the pressure point. And I'm I'm nervous that the court won't go far enough, but I think we'll see in June.
0: Yeah. Michael, thank you so much. This has been really illuminating, and we'll put links to your two wonderful articles so far. Good to know we'll be expecting a third once we have a, a ruling. But thank you for joining us.
1: Such an interesting, he, first of all, he's such an interesting guy, but that's such an interesting conversation. You know, more and more we're seeing these cases at the Supreme Court that impact, um, I think, all religions in America. Last, was it last year we had the case with the high school football coach who wanted to pray yeah. with his team? Mitch at the Kennedy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Lots, so, of, lots of ways these cases affect us. But so, shall we end with our recommendations of the week?
1: Yes, I think we shall. Uh, do you want to go first?
0: Sure. Mine is a more exciting one for people that live in New York, but there are hybrid options to experience it. I have long been fascinated with the fact that the brand Chanel, which was literally started by a Nazi spy, Coco Chanel, um, has turned into a brand beloved by Orthodox Jews with money and proclivities toward designer clothing. For those who are not familiar, it's a astronomically expensive designer clothing brand even on resale sites i check all the time but the metropolitan museum of art in new york city every year does a costume exhibit as a fundraiser you've probably heard of the met gala you see all these celebrities in crazy outfits um, and they do so in collaboration with vogue magazine and this year the gala honored carl lagerfeld who passed away recently he was not jewish but We ran a piece I actually commissioned while I was still at JTA, Um, but there's this very interesting narrative of how Karl Lagerfeld and his personality helped transform the reputation of Chanel from this Nazi brand into one that is now pretty beloved by celebrities and Jews. So my recommendation from the week is... The exhibit at the Met is open now until July 16th. They have pretty much an overview of Karl Lagerfeld's outfits and even like they took his desk and kind of transported it. Uh, My mom was very sad since she lives in Missouri that she couldn't experience it and was happy to see that the Met has an online View of most of the pieces in the collection There was also a really nice spread In Vogue We'll post links to all of that But you're, if you're in New York City get, get a ticket to the Met for free And uh, go check it out Benjamin, I assume you're going to have A more uh, highfalutin recommendation
1: Than, mine, but... <laughs> than, than high fashion uh, yeah. My recommendation for the, for the week I discovered uh, Probably in the last week This um, Hasidic uh, music duo Called Zusha uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Zusha. Uh, yeah. Everyone in my social media feed is posting about them. I, apparently, I guess I'm last to the to, to the scene here. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's um, like Hasidic electronic dance music. And what's
0: interesting is they actually started at NYU while I was there. Oh wow. Um, yeah. and they were like fixtures of the Chabad. There was actually one year that they performed a concert on on my roof on the Upper West Side, so I'm happy you're discovering them. <laughs> they're an exciting <laughs> exciting duo now.
1: Yeah, uh, like I guess I'm late to the party, but if you follow them on Instagram, what's funny is they post these videos and it looks like they're just like sitting in one of their living rooms and Uh, One of them is like holding his baby on his knee and, uh, you know, you know, rocking his baby on his knee and, you know, he's singing and the the friend next to him is using like all these household items instead of instruments like they're like knocking on a box of tissues or shaking a baby rattle. Um, So that's pretty cool. But what I want to recommend is they dropped a new song overnight. It's called World to Come. Uh, You can listen on Spotify. I've um, uh, guilty pleasure. I've had it on repeat all day. Uh, and you can follow them on Instagram, Zusha Music. That's Z-U-S-H-A, music, on Instagram. And we'll put a link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, amazing. I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen their, their latest. But yeah.
1: All right. We'll see everybody next week. That Jewish News Show is hosted
0: by me, Laura E. Adkins, and Binyamin Cohen. It is a production of The Forward. Our editor in chief is Jody Rudoran, and our CEO is Rachel Fishman Fedderson. Our theme music is by the Fly Guy Five. The Forward Association is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and The Forward was founded in 1897. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to and review that Jewish news show wherever you're listening. Five stars is preferable, but whatever you say, say it from the heart. We'd be ever so grateful if you'd send a link to today's episode to a friend or two as well. Finally, you can reach us at thatjewishnewsshow at forward.com or by calling or texting 201-228-0412. We'll see
1: you next week.